In the book of Matthew, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 4 if you'd like. That'll be our text again once for today. We've been in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, and we took it as a whole, considering the different four different places where it says, let us. And then we broke it down a little bit in the last couple of weeks. I want to read something for you in Matthew 28, verse 1. It says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn. Now catch that. In the end of the Sabbath, the seventh day. As it began to dawn. That would be the eighth day. The next day. Toward, but this is what it's talking This is what it says. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. Now what that's talking about here is the end of the Sabbath as it begins to dawn towards the first day of the month, the Sabbath. The day of rest, resting in Christ. It's talking about when the Lord Jesus died at Calvary and rose again, the old Sabbath was of the law had ended and the new Sabbath of grace that's what we rest in. We don't rest in the law. The law is good. But Christ has fulfilled it for us. That's not our rest. Our rest is in Him. It's in His works. Behold our exalted Savior. Picture Him. Picture Him seated on His throne in heaven. He sits on his throne undisturbed folks he's God nothing can turn his hand everything he's done is perfect and righteous he's sitting on his throne undisturbed serene in his absolute sovereignty his rest is his glory Listen to these words of John 17, verses 4 through 5. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The fact that our Redeemer has entered into his rest declares he has finished his work. Listen to John chapter 19 verse 30. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He has by his obedience in life brought in an everlasting righteousness. And by his obedience in death, the Son of God has obtained eternal redemption for his people. Because the work that he was sent to do is finished, salvation is sure. Because Christ has finished his work, the salvation of his people is certain. Turn over, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look at that where the, the writer declares here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. Listen to these words carefully. In Hebrews 9, 12, Neither by the blood of goats or calves and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once. Now that's that's where he is now. He's in the holiest of holies. Entered in once into the holy place, having what? 
What's that next word? Obtain. Is there anybody that doesn't know what that word means? That means already done. It's finished. The work is complete. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. So we see here his work, his finished work is a sure salvation for his people. All of his redeemed ones must enter into his rest as we read in our text in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 6. Seeing therefore remaineth that some must enter in. See that? That some must enter in. Those speaking of those who had not entered into God's rest yet. Those who still walked in darkness. Seeing as we must enter into his rest, as it says there, the works were finished from before the foundation of the world and according to God's purpose. And you can read about that in Revelation 13, 8. Also in Romans 28, 29 through 30. They were finished in time when the God-man took his seat in heaven as our forerunner. Look over at Hebrews 6, verse 20. Whether the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus. We see right there. He is our forerunner, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know what Melchizedek was? He was the king of Salem. Abraham was told to go to him and pay tithes. It doesn't tell us where Melchizedek came from, but he's the only king priest ever spoken of in scriptures outside of Christ. It's declaring here that he who is our forerunner, because of him there is no more work to be done. Christ our Savior has done it all. And since he has finished his work, he sat down in his glory. There he is resting. There is what the Sabbath days of the Mosaic law and the Mosaic economy pictured. But notice in verse 11 of our text back in Hebrews chapter 4, notice it, has, it instructs us to do something, does it not? Let us labor, desire, therefore, to enter into the rest, into, into that rest, the rest of Christ, the rest that God has been doing of his own works as God did from, the, from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief, speaking of those who fell in the wilderness because of unbelief. In the fourth chapter of Hebrews, we are called to rest in Christ, to look to Christ alone for acceptance with God, to trust Him alone for our wisdom, to trust Him alone for our righteousness, to look to Him only for sanctification and redemption, and that is what it is to truly keep the Sabbath. That is what it is to labor. Folks, we look. We look to our Savior. That is a labor, but it's a labor that God has given us. It's a labor because He has saved us from our sin. We must labor to quit looking. It says there in verse 11, we must labor to quit laboring. But we must labor to quit laboring. There is nothing in the world more difficult, more contrary to our flesh than this, to rest. I remember Don Fortner one time, he 
was given a message on resting in Christ. And he said, here's what rest is. And he grabbed his chair and he... Remember that? <laughs> that made such a that made such a, a, a an impression on me that all these years later that was long long ago that was that was over 20 years ago that was one of the first messages I remember him preaching and and <laughs> it made such a lasting impression on me today but this is something we have to remind ourselves of all time we're going to come to the table at the end of our services today what is that? but a reminder of who it is we're to labor to be in his rest. We must strive against that which is of the flesh. We must strive against that that is most horrid of all of our sins that we may rest in Christ alone. Look at verse 12, Hebrews 4 verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We're see, we see here God tells us that his word is quick and powerful. It's his word that we look to. It's his word that we stand upon. Turn to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look into His Word. Where do we go? We go to church on Sundays. We go to Bible study Friday nights. We join those who, who are worshiping God and seek out His Word to see His strength. To be reminded. That's laboring. But it's not something that we are doing out of, to, to bring salvation to ourselves. It's something we are looking to. And that's to the works of Christ. Looking to Him. And looking to Him alone. Pastor Mahan, in his Bible class commentary, he explains the passage in four ways here. He says, first off, the Word is alive. The Word quick is an old English word for alive. This is a living book. The words of our living Redeemer. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 23 we read this, Being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by what? By the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is grass, as it says in verse 24, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The glass, grass withereth, and flower thereof falleth away. But the word, verse 25, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which, which by the gospel is preached unto you. Look at another one, if you would. Go to the left, just before Hebrews. Uh, the book of James. James chapter 1. Look over there at verse 18. Speaking of the Word of God, it's alive. It's quick. In James chapter 1, verse 18, Of His own will begat He us with the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. 
The word is the living seed. Goes on to write Henry Mahan. The word is powerful. Our Lord in his word is active and effectual. He spoke for the elect in the council of the covenant of grace over in Hebrews chapter 7. Go back to Hebrews and look at chapter 7 with me. Verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. That's talking about Christ was made a better surety before anything was ever created. That's talking about Christ and His Word being in, in the elect and the counsel of God and the covenant of grace. He spoke all things out according, uh, uh, again, he, quoting Matthew or Henry Mahan. He spoke all things out of nothing in creation. That's in Hebrews 11, verse 3. Turn over there, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So we see here, also you can read in Genesis 1-6 and Genesis 1-9, but we'll, we'll go on from there. He spoke and revealed the Father as we read in John chapter 14, verse 10. Let me read that for you. I'll flip over there quickly to John verse 14. Chapter 14. At verse 10, we read these words. Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak, writes the Lord, speaks, says the Lord, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the work. So we see here, he spoke and revealed to the Father. He spoke and the dead came forth as we read in John chapter 5, verses 24 through 25. Look at that if you would. John chapter 5. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but be passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Does that not go well with what it says over, uh, I believe in John 6, my sheep hear my voice? No, John 10. Back in our text. Henry goes on to say this, he says, the word is sharp as a two-edged sword. The word is an edge. It has no blunt side. It is alive all over. You cannot come near the Word of God, writes Henry, without its having some effect on you. Our Lord comes not to send peace, but a sword. And that sword begins in our own souls, wounding and killing. However, it kills nothing but that which ought to be killed. Our pride, our envy, our lust, and our sins. The word is piercing and can find its way anywhere. Although the soul of the spirit is invisible and the joints and the marrow are covered and hid, so penetrating is the divine word that it reaches the most hidden and secret things of men and women. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Christ knows the heart and will make manifest all that is therein by his word. Look over at Luke chapter 16, verse 15. And he said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, 
but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He knows our hearts, the depths of our souls. And with that in thought, we look back in our text again, this time at verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 4. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Knowing the depth of his word and how deep it goes into your heart, into the marrow, into the into the bone, there is neither any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Nothing is hidden from God. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him of whom we have to do. Christ our Lord is omniscient, meaning all-knowing. Nothing is hidden from him. By his word he strips us naked and he lays us open, exposing the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's why we have no confidence, folks. That's why there's no confidence in the flesh to God's people. We see clearly there's nothing in this flesh of any good. See how it draws us to Him? See how it causes God's people to labor, to rest in Him, to seek Him for our rest? We rejoice. And we find comfort in knowing the Lord knows every thought before we even think it, even in the teeth of our sins. Unbelievers, hypocrites, they tremble at the thought of our Lord's omniscience. They love the darkness they walked in. Why? Because the light reveals the truth of their darkness. Our Lord Jesus is a priest like no other. Look at Hebrews 4:14. So then that we have a great high priest. What was the purpose of the, the what was the, the what did the high priest do? What was his function? His function was to take the sacrifice, the blood, and go into the holiest of holies. Only one could go in there, the high priest. Those guys were all nothing more than just pictures of the true high priest. And the true high priest is Christ Jesus himself. He's the true high priest of his people, am I right? So all these high priests, what was their purpose? Their purpose was to go in to the holiest of holies with blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, who is another, is another picture of Christ. See how Christ fulfills it all? He's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, seeing that we have a great high priest in verse 14 that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. We can hold on to it with steadfastness. This is what we profess. Christ Jesus is God. Sovereign ruler of all things. He is my Savior. The only true priest. He is Christ, our eternal priest, and he has no successor. He needs no successor. All the other priests were but men on earth. Christ is our great high priest in heaven. Moreover, he who is our great high priest is a priest who is touched by our infirmities. Look at verse 15. 
For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Our Lord Jesus is a compassionate high priest. He understands. He knows what we're going through. He's one who has been pierced by the very same things that pierce you and I. He was tempted in all points like we are, yet he is a priest that is accepted in heaven because there was no sin in him. And because he is a priest without sin, God accepted his sacrifice, his blood, his mercy seat. But yet there's still more, is there not? Christ is a priest upon a throne right now. He's on his throne of grace as we read in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in times of need. What reason we have to rest in him? If Christ is ours, we have all that can be required to give us peace. Let us ever come to him. Coming to him we shall find rest for our souls. Listen to Matthew 11, 28-30. Come unto me, the Lord says, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. Come unto God upon his throne. Come freely as to a friend. Come gladly to him whose throne is the mercy seat, the place of grace. Come for the grace that you need. Come to Christ, our great high priest, who sits upon the throne of grace to dispense mercy to his people as often as we need it and every time we need it. Amen.